Hello and welcome to episode three of the Breathing Space podcast. Today I have an amazing guest. So we have Sarah and Sarah is a critical care nurse and she's given us her first-hand account of what life has been like during the pandemic. So when it started and what life is like now up to today. She also shared her story, the reasons that she got into healthcare and also how she balances that with home life and let us know some of the amazing decisions that she's taken to keep being able to support people on the front line in those critical conditions. It's an amazing story. I hope you find it as impactful as I did having the conversation with Sarah and I can't thank her enough. What is your role? And I guess if you had to let people know, and someone like me, um, from outside of the profession, what like your job entails generally? Okay, so I have a little bit of a complicated role here, so I'll just give a bit of a background to it. Um, I started in intensive care nursing six years ago, and um, up until May last year, that's all I did, completely full-time. And then in May, I kind of got a new role within the same hospital that I work in, which is called Critical Care Outreach Clinical Nurse Specialists, where you are um, part of a very small but specialist group of nurses that are all have a kind of extensive background within intensive care. And you take your intensive care skills and knowledge that you've been learning there for years and years out into the wider setting of the hospital wards and you get involved in um, kind of the early escalation and management of any deteriorating patients on the wards. You always follow up all the patients that come out of intensive care and high dependency onto the wards to make sure that they're handling that um, like downgrade in their level of care okay and we don't want them to bounce back mm. um and you're also part i'm also part of the hospital's emergency team so if any medical emergencies going on in cardiac arrest you have to be expected to attend that as soon as possible um so i moved into that but alongside of that i still work in intensive care so part of that role is that you still do your intensive care shifts as well regularly keep skills up keep the relationships with the teams there um, it is a role that's very closely linked with all of the intensive care teams anyway mm. you feed back to them many times throughout the day about what is going on outside of there um so yes two jobs all rolled into one i'd all say rolled into one yeah wow and I, it's um it's amazing to have you on because i think it's um it's obviously to, um, to use the word that's in the title such a critical role um and uh, it's one of those areas which is something that um i guess you either need it or you see somebody who needs it at times in their lives where it is um you know crucial to them and that's where you and your teams kind of step in so i think it's um it's great to have you on and i'm interested to know in so in sort of a from a young age sort of growing up was was this always a route you thought about doing sort of getting into healthcare and things like that was it always something you wanted to do yes definitely i think 
my mum was a nurse and um and I was always just really fascinated with what she was doing when she was at work I'd want to hear all the stories and you know I could also see that there was it, it was a bit frustrating as a child you know my mum was gone long hours and overnights and hol like holidays when everybody's having it off my mum would still have to go into work yeah. Um, but despite that, I still just found everything that she did absolutely fascinating. Coupled with, I always had a fascination with the, you know, the human body and the workings of it, etc. Um, so I think I knew from a, a very, I think everybody knew from a very early on um, that that was probably some kind of something like that I was going to end up in. Yeah. Um, but actually, having said that, when I turned 18, I had my A-levels and I was applying for uni or deciding what to do. I wanted to do nursing then. And my mum actually begged me not to do nursing. Actually begged me. Um, wow. She know, and I do get her perspective looking back now. You know, I, I didn't have a problem with getting pretty good grades. Um, and the lifestyle that nursing gives you is is a hard one, you know. Mm. It's very rewarding, obviously, that I'm doing it and I'm happy doing it. But I, I understand now having, especially my own family, why perhaps she wanted me to go into a job that maybe didn't have the downfalls that nursing does. Yeah. So anyway, at 18, I decided, I listened to her, I wanted to please my parents and I respected what they wanted for me so I went off to uni did psychology because I was also interested in that the A levels as well and then I did a master's in psychology and then at the end of that I decided it's definitely not what I wanted to do despite trying I tried my best for four years I just knew it wasn't going to make me happy yeah um about that time I was kind of just living for the moment and I Decided to go traveling just for four months was the plan. Ended up coming back near pretty much a year later. Um, and while I was away, I just I'm definitely a believer in taking a step back from a situation to really figure out about what it is that you want. And when I came back, I just came back and basically said, I'm going to do nursing. I'm sorry if that's not what you want for me, but this is this is this is what's going to make me happy. I know it is. So then came back, applied, went to, um, got on a fast track two year postgrad course at King's College in London. Um, and it was there, I mean, I was out of the course and it was there that I did my final 12 week placement in intensive care, a big London hospital. And I couldn't imagine working anywhere else after that. Wow. That was it for me, that was, that was, I suppose the, the situation that led me to where I am now. Wow. Um, and I think, and that was before I had children. I think then when I got pregnant with my twin girls, you know, it was a very complicated pregnancy. And I was on, I was on the patient side and I was on the receiver of some quite bad news at times. But looking back at that situation, there were also some incredible health professionals mm. that when I look back, they made all the difference to me. 
yeah. they made things just so much better in quite stressful traumatic times and so after I had them it kind of almost just reminded me and um just gave me that confirmation that all the life choice that I had made were definitely right for me yeah that is amazing to there's those periods that you mentioned that kind of that from local inspiration as well um mm -hmm. so like uh, on a, a couple of episodes so far people have where I've asked kind of where inspiration comes from as well from all those years where you're sort of forming what you want to do is very close to you is where you've taken a lot of inspiration from so you mentioned obviously your mum and then you mentioned going through that with your pregnancy and it it was close to you rather than necessarily looking from afar that you got your your drive from mm. and that yeah. um that's that reason why so why we do things um and you mentioned there that it's kind of that's sort of what you were working out you found it you realized that's what you wanted to do and that do you still um and obviously it's it's extreme times at the moment in in times now and uh, normal however we want to put it do you still get to sit down sort of after work and reflect on that this this is why I do it and get that feeling um I think at the moment well since I went back after maternity leave there's not much sitting down to reflect time that I get at home but I do have like a 30 to 40 minute commute to work yeah and that is definitely my reflection time you know it's the time when I'm going that I kind of leave the mum side of me at home and switch on the work mode and then when I'm coming home it's definitely the time where I do relay all the things that have happened in the day because often you know things can happen at such a fast pace you're not acknowledging how you'll feel about it or really what's what's actually going on you're, you're working through the motions of what needs to be done then and there. Mm. Um, but in the car, I definitely can just have that quiet time where I do reflect back. And sometimes it's, I just can just do it silently to myself. And other times, that's why I ring one of my nursing friends and, like, and, you know, like, this is what happened today, you know, can you believe it? And then often conversations with them is how I get that reflective time. Yeah. And I get, is that, um, because my one of my follow up questions would be just how do you it must be something um, as somebody again, not, you know, in healthcare, my mum was in healthcare as well, but it's difficult, uh, you know, sometimes if I'm in work, and I take a trouble home, it's not something which is uh, quite literally life or death or, or things like that. And things that you um, are dealing with is just some kind of those mechanisms. That's really interesting to hear that, you know, you, it's that space and you sort of work through that moving from practical to what is the feeling behind it and, mm. and processing what has happened and I get so your support network with that as well you say that you've got kind of you'll either have people in the same situation so nurse friends as well mm. and your your support network in general like how uh, it might be an obvious question but how critical are they so obviously you've got your girls you've got um your parents you've got your you know whatever it might be your nurse colleagues how critical is that to you I mean I think it's why I've you know got this far through this pandemic in reasonably 
sound mental health I think mm. you know, they're very they're all very good you know I'm not I think I'm not an overly emotional person I sometimes I'm not the best at talking about how I feel about a situation probably because in the moment I'm not really sure how I feel about it sometimes it's later down the line that I realize how I felt about it at the time yeah but knowing that they're there they're thinking of me they make it known all the time that they're thinking of me um if I want to I can ring them up and I know that I can have a rant to them I could cry to them I could not mention anything about work and just know that I'm ringing them to actually have to take my mind off work or I can just not ring them and just have a moment to myself and all of those scenarios all of those situations that everyone's on board with so I'm very much the leader in my own needs I've got no one forcing me to do anything no one making me say you know you need to talk about this which probably in some ways I do but people that are my support know I'm not like that so just allow me to get on with it how I'm getting on with it and trust that if I was really struggling really struggling that and then I would say something yeah, that understanding between you all of of how somebody is and maybe what somebody needs at a particular time, it's mm. where, and I guess where you find yourself now in in such a high pressure, such a um, uh, uh, you know, I was going to say unique, but the situation now at the moment, just applying what it is, must mm. amplify that the necessity of having that great support around you and the value of it just is again another thing that's ratified you know another thing that says this is why it's so important yeah and I think you know anyone in doing a a role to me or similar to me can have all the support they need all the support they require in the world but it won't take all of the stress and strains away it's like you know coming back from holiday and you've got your big luggage and your medium-sized luggage and your hand luggage, you know, all this point in the world and you probably can leave your big luggage and medium-sized luggage there and then when you're getting what you need out of that situation. But then you'll always have that little handbag of stresses and strains that I think just won't go away Mm. it's always there yeah that's such a great way of putting it it's kind of like yeah that it's there's always something there it's the the level might change and things like that and there's Mm -hmm. ups and downs but there's always everyone's always got that piece of luggage with them it's Mm. just how how heavy does it feel at that point Mm. or how large does it feel Yeah, yeah that's such a good way of putting it and um so we then move into and this is um I'm really kind of interested to see your experience of this. So obviously we go to January last year and um, that's where we start first hearing the reports of this respiratory virus. um, And I guess the first warning signs start to come out. Mm -hmm. And then we we go up to March, uh, end of March, I think I, the date, I think it was about 23rd, something like that, where we went into a national lockdown, mm-hmm. um, in the UK and, um, the acceleration from January to March, I think, you know, for the world 
was huge from your perspective um, within healthcare. So that the move and and how quickly everything went from January to March and the pressure building within there. One, just take us through, I guess, how that built, but also, do you remember a moment? Do you remember a specific time where I guess the acknowledgement of, of what was coming or, or how this was going? Do you remember sort of like, that moment? Definitely, definitely. So to answer the first part of that first, we, to put into context, I work in a hospital that's a specialist hospital, so we don't have an A&E. So in that respect, we were quite, um, what's the word, quite protected in the beginning, in that we didn't suddenly over a few weeks just have that influx of people coming, presenting themselves to A&E and needing to come into intensive care straight away. Yeah. But what we did have is all the surrounding district general hospitals around us. We, you know, we have to know what's going on in those and we, were hearing all these stories about what it was that was actually like a bomb had gone off in there in terms of these patients just from you know no COVID patients to hundreds of COVID patients um, all really poorly and all deteriorating and you know not being nursed and cared for in the appropriate places of the hospital like they would be under normal circumstances. Um, what I remember specifically is obviously over the years of working there, I've become um, quite friendly with a lot of the consultants that work in intensive care. You know, we work very closely together under high pressure environments. It just, you know, it happens. And I've got huge respect for these people. They are the absolute leaders of their field. I've seen them work time and time again in situations where their decisions and their actions will in in the space of a few seconds or minutes will mean whether will will determine whether that patient will live or die Mm. and they don't get flustered they just they're so calm they just they're incredible unbelievable really but leading up to this they were getting nervous they were getting frightened and they were very unsure about anything anymore what was the next week was going to bring they were moving out of the homes of their families but at that time we ran a big cardiac service for London so the the plan was to try and continue with that because you know these all these other people still need their heart surgeries and etc um but I think in the back of our minds, we all knew that wasn't going to continue. Um, and then I, I remember reading something like a newsletter that goes out to all staff on the Friday saying, you know, we will continue our cardiac service. We will try to continue as normal, you know, doing what we do and, and what we need to provide. And I was like, OK, and then I had the weekend off and then I came in on Monday morning and I was told everything over the weekend had changed. I was being sent out on as part of the nurse of part of a retrieval team. And we were now clearing out all the patients there that we had, all the, what we call green, clean, non-COVID patients. We'd made a new intensive care in a different part of the hospital. We were cleaning them out, taking them there 
And we were now filling up with COVID patients that we, as part, I was part of that team that day, we're gonna go out and collect from the nearby hospitals that were struggling. So we'd only done one of these retrievals before, which was the day before. And the nurse that did it then, we did it with those first few ones, we did one nurse and two consultants. And the nurse came and found me and briefed me on what it was that I was gonna go into that day. And I didn't really believe her. I just thought it's not, it's not gonna be that bad. Mm. Like it's, it's just not. And we were going out and had everything ready, all the equipment and, you know, we were as prepared as we could be. And me and the two consultants walked into this hospital thinking we'd go to intensive care to collect this patient. We had a name, we told them they didn't really know where this patient was. Everything was car carnage, chaos, mayhem. In the end, they steered us away from intensive care into theatres and told us to wait there. And then we realised no one was coming for us. We just, we just had to go in and find this patient ourselves. And what was in the theatres there was normally obviously a theatre has an anaesthetic room where a patient's prepped for theatre and then a, opens up into a big theatre, a big theatre where all the surgery will take place. And what we walked into was the anaesthetic room where there was one patient being cared for in an IT ventilated, sedated, lots of, lots of things going on. And then it opened up into the theatre that had three more patients in there. So this was just not, you know, this is not how we do things. And under no, under no circumstances, no normal circumstances would this be okay. Mm. There was equipment everywhere. There was no surfaces. There was just people running around, not really knowing what they're doing. And the two consultants said to me, just, we'd been briefed on what we were gonna do and we got there, just said to me, you know, let's just, let's just crack on, let's just get this patient out of here ASAP. So we did that um, and got them back to where we were. But at the end of that day, I just realized this is what they were talking about. Mm. This, is, this is what was going to then be our hospital in a, a week or two's time, once we'd filled up offloading all of the, all of the surrounding hospitals that couldn't cope anymore. And it was, I just remember thinking like, it's like we've gone to war and we've popped up these hospitals. We don't have the resources. We don't have the equipment. We don't have the staff. We don't have any of the basics that six weeks ago, we all just took for granted as mm. like gospel that would never go away. You know, the NHS service, we're, we're incredible. We have the NHS and we're all fine. And suddenly, actually we're not fine yeah and do, do you remember uh, roughly when that so when would that have been through the um, that spring period i think that would have been like late march late march early april around the time of that lockdown yeah yeah and and you say you you know we were talking before under sort of normal circumstances that you have that that journey, you have that reflection time. I mean, I'm guessing that there wasn't, I, I, I'm guessing here, but there must've been a point where days just were one big lump at that point in terms of like, how do you break that up? And you can't really stop, I guess, can you, in, in that situation? <laughs> yeah, no, they, um, 
actually thinking back with a lot of the my nurse friends at work and I have said there's not a lot we really remember about specifics of that first wave you know when you're in that environment and you're fully PP'd up and everybody looks the same and all the patients look the same you know they've all got exactly the same things going on and you know you don't really know who is who or what people are there to do I've likened it before to like worker bees like we're all there we've all got the same goals you kind of have to trust that everyone's just getting on because also what people I think don't appreciate is in these FFP3 masks just speaking is so uncomfortable and so um draining like energy wise you get out of breath so people were talking less recognizing each other less but just having to have more faith that mm. we're all there and we're all doing the best we could all those like nice basic nursey care things maybe weren't at the forefront of our minds but at the time it's just get through the day and keep those patients alive and sometimes mm. you achieve that and sometimes you didn't but everyone was just doing what they could yeah and i guess it's, it's whatever the that level of um training or you know things like that is is there was a certain amount of instinct that you just had to go with by the sounds of it yeah as, as yeah. much as you can be trained there wasn't training for that exactly exactly you just have to apply your knowledge speak up when you're when you really don't know when you're really out of your depth get help then but in the meantime just get on with what you can do mm. and there was i think one of the um one of the things which is really i mean so many things have hit home to people but one of the things about this is the the isolating nature of it is you you take apart with some of those patients where they can't have family around them as well and things like that where you then you then take up a very different role don't you and yeah i guess that's quite a key difference to to this yeah and actually personally i think that's what i found the hardest of all of this is that in the beginning there was absolutely no visiting allowed no matter what no no matter what was happening no mm. visiting um and we ended up doing video calls on microsoft teams with families mm. and so when it came to the time that patients, you know, we'd done all we could and there was no other possible outcome, the, the patient was definitely going to die. And the family were told that. And you'd have to set up these video calls for families to say goodbye to their relatives over Microsoft Teams. Mm. I mean, that could not be further from what feels natural and normal and right and that's actually the hardest bit when I look that they're the bits that I remember they're the hardest bits because I can tell you now it's difficult enough when that's it you have to be a part of that situation in normal times but put families crying and screaming down Microsoft Teams onto a computer that then echoes around its whole environment and you know you can't you can't, you know, stop them from saying that. That's that's their grief, and that and they should have that time. They're not allowed anything else, of course. So they, you know, they have to just be left to get on with that dealing with that situation how they 
they need to mm. but in the background of that when you're listening to this day in day out for 13 hours a day at some point around you that is actually what is so soul destroying because mm. the time that you can't get back and you know of course those patients are never alone that's what you know we're there to hold the hands and we're there to try and give some comfort to you know the patients that probably aren't aware and they're very comfortable and it's as nice as it could possibly be in those circumstances but it's still not right still not how it should be yeah it's it's the reality of the situation and hear you describing that is so emotive um for people in the luxury position that you don't have to see it or deal with it and i think maybe there's a there's a a part in people that that's a really difficult um will be a really difficult thing to hear Mm. but is the reality of the situation that that yourself and so many people went through to try and support those people at those points that that Mm. you were seeing in, in their lives and as you say either that was at the end of their life um or you know they were at a balancing point uh, you know, and, and it was going to go one way or the other. Mm-hmm. I think, um, I, I don't know what the right word is, but it's very humbling to hear as well, because I think it's easy to detach from the situation, um, you know, when you are, in, let's say, in a lockdown and you're in, a, you're in your apartment and, and things like that, and the going can be tough, is to hear the reality of what people go through. I think it's easy to detach. And I think um, it's, as I say, just very humbling to hear um I think yeah I mean I I had to I kind of hope I chose my words wisely I hope that no one that listens to this you know has been through that and takes it the wrong way it's just an insight into the reality of things that mm. you know is just uncomfortable for everybody it's yeah. uncomfortable but I think it is very important that people do understand you know moving forward from this and there is going to be a lot of I think consequences on people that were involved directly like in those situations but mm-hmm. I think it is just just having an acknowledgement that it wasn't just hard, like a physical, hard, relentless. It's a very emotional, hard, relentless, yeah. I suppose, yeah. for everyone involved, you know? Yeah. You don't want to sit there and say, oh, we we had it so much worse. Because I, I don't believe that. I don't believe one set group of people do, does have it worse than another. Mm. But I do think it's part of a situation that probably hasn't been highlighted very much yeah Um, Yeah. your hospital then was moved into its kind of you know treating regular patients coming through the doors and we so as the uk obviously we we went through that lockdown and then the the lockdown was eased again uh time frame sort of we're going into sort of summer Mm. at that point that things started to ease what were your feelings at that point and, and how were things going into that um, point where things started to ease off? I think just a, a breath of relief, 
actually that we were over that wave one I think anyone that had my kind of role during that time and my kind of relationship with the knowledge from you know not from the media but from the statistics of really what is going on in in terms of the covid situation mm. i think we all knew it was going to come back but we at the same time didn't really want to think about it and we've worked so hard our annual leave had been cancelled you know we were had no break that when it restrictions started to be eased and you know the weather was even nicer and you could meet a few more people outside and you know most people haven't seen their loved ones or family or friends for months and months it was just such a boost mm. it was such a boost that at the back of our minds we all knew it wouldn't last and we all knew it was a temporary situation but it kind of made you really just appreciate the really basics mm. like just going and seeing that fresh face and having a chat and you know having you know my some of my friends and family see the girls my children that they haven't seen for months and months and that's all I'd really craved for so it just felt like a weight had been lifted off my shoulders temporarily but appreciative mm. for that temporary time yeah kind of bringing yourself into that moment and just enjoying mm. it as it as it happened mm. that's um equally as as heartening to hear that um you know there, there was a glimpse of of at least a relief even though as you say you kind of knew what was then gonna come and i think that it was the inevitable thing that things were going to pick up again as we went into uh, you know we have flu season and all those things that happen anyway yeah. and then um, did you feel um better prepared is uh, if that's the right way of putting it going into that that second rise um yes and no logistics and practicalities yes we knew what kinds of things to expect we knew you know the logistic practical things in how our hospital would need to change yet again and we could just get on and do that because we've done it all before mm. but what was different is just the level of energy people had you know as I said, the NHS cancelled all annual leave for months and months. And so they opened it up again, I think, maybe end of June time or something like that. Um, and so people had, had got in there a few weeks here and there. But it wasn't really enough to have really got your energy and your, like, spunk for life back, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. So when it, it was coming again, just everyone's had that, you know, that sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach, like, oh no, not again. And this mm. time we actually had the insight of actually really understanding what's coming next, which the first time around we didn't really. You could, you know, you have, we, I suppose we were kind of hopeful it wasn't going to be as bad as we thought for a long time until it actually did hit. And then obviously we knew, but this time just knew, seeing those statistics rise and seeing what was coming next. I think everyone just dreaded it, didn't really talk about it, mm. 
but then when it did come up we all acknowledged that we all felt the same if that makes sense yeah yeah definitely i think it's really interesting the there's that phrase which i'm not going to be able to get right but there's the there's things in life that are unknown unknowns so mm. did we see it coming and but we don't know about it this was this was a known and you could see it coming um yeah. but actually it was it, you know taking that moment you could see it coming and maybe the um rest is is not quite the same as relief so maybe there was a bit of relief but there wasn't rest before yeah. going into that that exactly exactly and you know people usually have their holidays you know no one could go on holiday no one just had their normal rest periods that they needed more than ever yeah absolutely and so when so we start to get towards christmas time then and i think that's when there was a big um I say a big week, however is best to put it again, but there was the week in the lead up to Christmas where there was a lot of, um, as is a defining thing of the pandemic as well, there's there's the, there's media frenzy, there's media involvement in this and there's portrayal of what's going on, but there was kind of a, a real heightened frenzy around what Christmas meant, what Christmas was doing, and all all that time, the reason that that conversation was happening about what people could do at Christmas, who you could see, was again because of what was happening on the front line of the pandemic, wasn't it? And mm-hmm. in that that bit before Christmas, as as I guess that conversation was going on, were we were you on? Um, you know, if you had to compare it, if you can compare it to the first time, we, what did it feel like at that point when we're sort of looking now at that? That was where we were starting to go beyond levels of the first peak and things like that in terms of statistics. So I think in the run up to Christmas, I think I, in my mind, I class it as two points in the run up to Christmas. The first point was like early December, I think. We'd just come out of that four week lockdown in November, I think. Um, and I think it had helped slightly, but statistics still weren't great. And they were still talking about, you know, this easing of restrictions over Christmas, the, the four days over Christmas or something like that. And I personally found it a bit hard to hear because I just knew that, you know, there's nothing changes in those four weeks over Christmas, you know. Mm. If we could do that then, we'd just be able to, uh, safely, we'd be able to do it all the time. So it was difficult to fathom. And I think quite a lot of people were getting nervous and anxious about what it, it would mean for January. But at the same time, there was a part of me that just wanted to go with it you know whatever whatever they said I wanted to, to do within those limits because you know I'd not seen my parents for most of 2020 I probably count on one hand how many times I've seen them and mm. and you know there's only so much talking over FaceTime and you know getting two two-year-olds to interact with grandparents over FaceTime that I could do I just wanted some you know that comfort of being around my parents for once and it would have been lovely to do that over Christmas so I had this like battle going on in my head all the time like no it's you're stupid why are they even talking about it like and then the other part of me be like no it's been a really long year you know just just everyone needs this not just me everybody needs this Mm. so there's constant battle and then what was it like nearly two weeks before Christmas the 
something like that. Anyway, when they announced the tier four and this new variant and that knocked me for six because I didn't see that coming. Mm. I, di- I didn't see, I didn't really hear anything about the new variant until that, that like the day before that. And, and I didn't really think we weren't going, we were going to be housebound alone for Christmas. Of all the scenarios I could have imagined throughout the year, I thought we would have ended the year in a better scenario than that. Um, so that was quite hard to hear. And then comes the, all the anxiety about, oh no, well, what does that mean? We know what that means. I know what's coming. I, I know. And I think with all this, I talk with my friends at work all the time. We actually think the anxiety pre-big COVID event is almost worse than just working through COVID. It's all the unknowns and all the what ifs and all the, oh, what are we going to do? But mm. actually, when you're in the thick of it, we know what to do. We've done it before. Well, yeah. you just put on, you, you keep your head down and you, you do what is expected of you and what is needed. I guess I said, when you're, I think um, it's an odd thing, isn't it? It's society's it needs and, and things like that. And as you say, <laughs> even you know yourself on the front line thinking about that Christmas and what a year it had been and actually just something that resembled uh, a normal or a, a you know a touch point or just oh it's not even a normal is it but you seeing I your mean, parents yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> what we might deem actually as as a necessity sometimes you know that contact that that need to be around family that you know stuff like that is that yearning that you had yeah to get that contact and um which kind of leads on as well to something which I think really struck me about your story. So we came to Christmas, I think it just coming out of Christmas um, was when you made an incredibly selfless decision and one which I think anyone, parent or not parent, will be kind of uh, personally, I would say in, in awe of in terms of the decision that you made. So what um, what was that decision that you made just after, so was it just after Christmas? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So we decided that going into this surge, shall we call it, um, I was going to live alone and my husband would take the, the girls to go and they would all go and live with my parents. And there were many, many factors involved in that big decision that we made. Um, But one of the overriding factors, I guess, was that my biggest fear throughout all of this, well, my biggest fear throughout all of this was that um, I would lose one of those, someone that I loved Mm. in that scenario over Microsoft Teams that I absolutely couldn't bear. Mm. Um, That's worst case scenario number one. Worst case scenario number two that I think about every day is what if I bring it home because I'm covered in it. By the time you come in from work, you're just covered in COVID. Mm. Um, To to my two-year-olds and husband and you know, and it's not like under normal circumstances, and non- normal circumstances when my children are poorly, 
you know, we grandparents help or, you know, we just buckle down and we get on with it and hope, you know, usually the rest of us are okay. But I just, in my head, couldn't picture how we would be able to get through a period where we've all got COVID, the girls are poorly, Ferg and I are really poorly, because knowing so many people that have had COVID, I know that you don't need to be hospitalised for it to completely wipe the floor with you. Mm. You can be bed bound for days, you can't lift your head off the pillow. Now, obviously, there are these people that walk around asymptomatic and infected, or very mild symptoms. But actually, of all the people that I know that personally they've had it that's a minority so I knew I couldn't I couldn't I can't quit my job I can't turn my back on this and I just need to do what I need to do at work but I just had this such strong fear of just me doing my job was putting everybody around me the ones that I love more than anything at risk and it just didn't seem fair it didn't seem fair on them at all. You know, you know, I'd taken the girls out of nursery. My husband works from home. They're all doing the right things. and all making the sacrifices, yet me doing my job puts them at more risk than most other people. Mm. So, yeah, we made the very... And it's funny you say selfless because I don't see it that way. Part of me actually sees it as a selfish decision because gave me a lot of relief from that anxiety that I had every single day, knowing that they are so safe. Mm. They were in that little bubble, you know, at my parents' house, incredible garden that the girls can run around, so much space. They didn't really leave the house and they were away from me and that was good. And so in that way, it was probably quite a selfish decision because it was it was a primarily for their safety and b also for my anxiety around that situation of possibly making them poorly and i guess you get carrying that into your work each day and and coming home is quite a thing to carry Mm, yeah it's everyone's fear it's everyone's fear everyone that i work with we all have the same fears you know, and I actually class myself as quite lucky that we had the option to do what we did. You know, I had willing parents that were more than happy for that situation to happen. I had a husband that was willing to basically be mum and dad for the next however many weeks. And they had a safe place to go mm. that we could facilitate everyone still doing what they needed to do in the meantime and trying to say staying as safe as possible in the meantime so and in that you, way it's very lucky you because we we're obviously talking about the support network that you have around you that immediate level of understanding is just another example i guess of where a strong support network helps you um equally you know those things that you are expressing that it was going to help you in your role is going to help you in your job, you know, you and that kind of thing is that um, the way you've described it is that I'm not saying anyone would say it was an easy decision, but they knew where you were coming from. They knew what the, what the situation was and the understanding was behind it was, it was that kind of how it felt. 
Definitely. I think um, the biggest support anyone could give me is practical support with helping making sure my children are okay. Mm. The amount of emotional worry that these tiny beings give you from the day they're born, or probably before then, actually, but, you know, that becomes heightened when you're a nurse doing my job in this kind of circumstance. So anyone that can just help me to make sure they are okay is the best support anyone could offer me. Mm. The emotional stuff is an absolute added bonus. It's definitely needed, but that is support number one. Yeah. Wow. And so the great news is, is that is it the end of this week that you're meeting up with the girls again? Yeah. Yes. This week we have decided to end our um, separation and everyone will move back home again. It was, we, it was important to us when we did this, that we never really put a time frame on it. And, um, and we kind of just assessed it every day. If anyone at any point started to struggle, then they would have just come back and we would have just had to deal with the situation as best we could. But actually everyone seemed to be okay and happy. I've had my vaccine about three and a half weeks ago. The situation at work isn't great, but it's a situation that's not going to be great for several months. Mm -hmm. And it's not feasible that they don't live with me or have anything to do with me for that amount of time. So I met with my husband for a walk, I think last week it was, and we just came to the decision together that actually it feels like now is the right time that we try and move into phase two, and I guess, of um, this life that we're in and trying to balance our work juggling acts with what's best for our family. Mm. It's a great example of um, taking the steps when you need to take a step, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I think um, one thing uh, the pandemic has done is gone planning sometimes go out the windows and you have to work with those around you and trust what your instinct is. And, and I guess that's the move that you're, you're making now is you're, you're trusting what's around you, trusting to those conversations that you've had and you've realized that now's that time with, with the prospect of kind of how things will be over the next couple of months. Yes, exactly. Like, a, like I guess, yeah, it's an instinctive thing. There isn't, it's not one thing. It's not based on a number or, a something that's happened it just feels like now we need to start to move on with the normal life that is now I guess yeah yeah and um so that normal life now um I know we we were starting to chat sort of before the record around what things are like at the moment um how are things sort of your day-to-day now and, and what are you seeing um, so there are less patients queuing at the door to come into intensive care, um, which is, I mean, there are still some, but I mean, the, just the sheer numbers are slightly less. Um, the intensive care is still full of very poorly COVID patients on ventilators, some of them making progress, some of them not. Um, 
in the other part of my role, this coat, you know, when people do recover from this and kind of go onwards throughout the wards and towards their, their home destination, they're just in a really poorly, poorly state. You know, it's not a, oh, you wake up from COVID and you have a bit of a cough still, but you get better. They're so depleted of health and there's a lot of other complications. And so a lot of ward nurses are tired, but they're still carrying on. They're still quite, there. nurses and doctors, and I'd say most healthcare professionals are very resilient people. Mm. And they might have a bit of a moan, and they might be tired, but it doesn't stop them from having a sense of humour and just getting on with what they need to do still. But it's just that that busyness, relentlessness, people are still making the best of it, but it's it still just feels so different from what is normal. Normal, I say in inverted commas, normal that, has, that hasn't been normal for over a year, but, you know, mm. what we'd all known previously to this. Yeah, yeah. And um, that's such a great word, resilience, that must define the response of healthcare workers, is that resilience. And and I say that um, kind of, which I kind of want to touch on now, and as we start to, um, I don't want to say move out, but I think it, it doesn't have to be move out, but start to acknowledge something that you were speaking about earlier. Obviously, resilience is a key word. And but thinking about that is that it's not um, not everyone is can be consistently resilient. I think um, from you know the situations you've described, I think there's a really important aspect which has been muted about. I think um, in in certain sectors, but um, the the impact for people who have worked frontline, particularly mental health aspect of of what we've been through, you've you, you know you likened it quite rightly in those first instances of you know feeling like we'd gone to war in terms of how it felt and and what had to go through the examples that you've given around how it feels on the wards what's your um i guess what's your view on that what's your feeling on that do you think we're do you think we're prepared for that do you think that um the right conversations are happening i think it's um it's a very interesting topic because I think it's well known now, especially that um, there's actually quite large numbers of people involved in the kinds of situations I talked about earlier that already have a diagnosis of PTSD mm. and anxiety and depression. And, you know, I think the list does go on. Um, couple that with I mean I've seen um, an, an exodus of some incredible staff because they just had enough they mm. just couldn't do it anymore um, and whilst my hospital I can, I can only speak for my hospital I don't really know what's going on elsewhere but my hospital particularly this time around has put into place quite a lot of um, sessions with our clinical psychology team to just kind of open up the floor for people to talk about what it is that's going on and how that is impacting on their daily, daily lives because 
I think it's kind of taken the last seven, eight, nine months to realise that it has become detrimental to a lot of people personally and their personal mental health and well-being. Mm. And if there isn't these platforms for people to seek help and to talk about it and get things off their chest and maybe access further help that they need then the situation I actually think will be quite dire Mm. and it's one that I am quite hopeful it won't end up in a dire situation but I think if it's not tackled in the right way and people aren't given access to the right things it could end up like that because Mm. you know like I said likened it to war zones none of us went into this job expecting to be put in these situations and to deal with it none of our training has been around dealing with these situations so I guess moving forward it is a bit of a an eye-opener I think for the sector in general um, both now and moving forward and thinking about that as a as we start to move forward so I think you know everyone's hopeful in time will will tell how vaccine rollouts kick in and things like that and um, I guess time is the thing which is unknown um, but hopefully we'll make strides towards it it's uh, I'm sure it's a little too soon and maybe you know i'd love to touch base in 12 months time and ask you the same question what do you hope is learnt so whether that's in your role or wider have you um i mean obviously it all goes so time to reflect is short but what would you like to think of some things that we as society you know might learn from this experience i hope that people will learn to slow down a bit actually it's a conversation that I had with my mum so many times previous pre-covid shall we call it you know she always talks about how fast-paced my life is and how you know when she was in her early 20s and she had a son and she worked as a nurse and she seemed to have so much more time than I do and I just didn't understand it and and then it occurred to me I think reflecting maybe on lockdown number one that in many ways it's been a happy time because I just we've just hung out with my family like my close family Mm. my husband and my girls and we've actually been quite happy doing that we've been happy doing the real basic things you know going to the park for some fresh air um you know, just all being at home and having a pizza together. When when you live that fast-paced life and you can be almost passing ships, you don't get that time. So also, you know, what everyone misses the most is just, it's not the fancy things in life. It's just that human contact and that being able to see someone when you want and no restrictions and no worries about people's health. and And then... So that's one aspect of it. Another aspect I think would be, you know, there's been this big plea for kindness over 
the course of the last year. And it's something I'm actually a big believer in. And I think this has taken, has forced people to take a step back and open their eyes as to who it is that's around them. You know, you, is it elderly neighbours, you know, we, you, we better go and check if they need anything from the shops because we're going and they're not probably not really leaving their house, you know, do mm. they need some basic things? And and so I've tried to do that myself and I've definitely been on the receiving end of a lot of kindness myself. Mm. Um, but I think we had got into a bit of a stage where a state of mind where everyone was very narrow minded. Everyone looked into their own little bubbles and what they need and they wanted. And, you know, even things like talking more about conversations about the state of the world and what it's going to end up in 50 to a hundred years time. I don't think people really fully grasped that until you know, we have a moment like we do where it feels like the world stopped. It feels like everything we knew as normal has gone mm. to actually realise there's nothing that we could, not much we could do about it to stop COVID, but things that we can stop the world changing in ways that we don't like. I think people are more open into actually making some differences themselves. Mm. I think they're the key aspects in terms of general life. I'm not sure I would have too much to add about move things changing in my work. I think, you know, the NHS has got its faults, but primarily it does a really good job doing what it's doing. And I think post-COVID, it will go back to doing that. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. I think what hopefully we can carry on. And I think what's interesting, my, my next question is, there will be, um, so we mentioned that your, you know, influence into medicine and health work and, and things are from a direct response from family. Mm. Um, and there will be that influence. There'll be people who will be seeing, um, and what I hope in, you know, equally in this is hearing a story of, of people who have been on the front line of this pandemic and kind of hear the accounts and will be inspired as well. And I think that's a um, part of why I wanted to have this conversation is, is that inspiration point as well is it's, um, it's the reason why you do what you do. The reason why you do what your job is people will have those the same feelings people will see people in healthcare doing what they do and want to replicate what they've done and definitely you know it, it's a tough time and it's a scary time and it's a hugely pressurized time um but that inspiration will still be there for people and if you if you had people in front of you who are saying you know i'm i want to consider health work i want to consider what would your advice be you know having gone through wave one we're in the middle of the pandemic what would your advice be before i answer that i'm just going to put my laptop on charge before it dies one second yeah no problem um so i think if anyone has any inclination of thinking it might be 
something that they want to do, I would just say if they've been thinking that throughout COVID, then the chances are they would very much enjoy the job under normal circumstances. You know, COVID isn't going to last forever. Mm. And I have, I hope I haven't made this too depressing, this whole this whole podcast, because that definitely wasn't my intention. Obviously, we've touched on some some sad points, but I think the highs forever outweigh the lows. Otherwise, you would never get people doing this job. You know, just to, and it sounds so cliche, like I hear some people, other people talk about it and it it sometimes makes me cringe, but there is no way of putting it, no other way of putting it. You know, the difference that you can make to people at such vulnerable, life-changing moments during their lifetime, and having been, as I said, a patient on the receiving end of that myself, you know, it is truly incredible that you can have, you can make that difference. And it doesn't take, actually doesn't really even take much training like if you just have that need or desire or want to 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 help in that kind of way then you're 50% there so I definitely encourage it yeah amazing and I, I don't think you should worry about um you know the uh, what you've put across is such a it's a real story as to what's happening in this pandemic in this situation I think um, personally, I'm completely humbled by the story that you've told. Um, and I know that people will really register with the story that you've told as well. I think it's really important because um, healthcare, as again, as we were mentioning before, healthcare is often the thing that you maybe don't appreciate till you really need it. And from from the outside, I have used, um, or should I say, my my family has had need for the NHS, and I would be forever grateful for the care from the individuals that have helped people in my family. And uh, from my perspective, one thing that I really hope registers is, um, you know, I think people understood the importance of healthcare the the recognition of those as individuals who work in there and maybe just that um uh, dare i say you know the the where they sit the priority list where we register them on a day-to-day what this pandemic has done is make people realize what that means and what Mm. people do um and and the story that you've told is is just highlighting an example of that of which you know as as you will know can be replicated for many, many people across the country and then take it across the world who have really um, kind of, as you know, gone to war for our benefit on this and have done everything they can for people in really extreme circumstances. Um, so personally, I just wanted to thank you so much for telling your story, because as I say, it, it's humbled me hugely. Um, and I, hopefully, would you know, I know it will to others and it will really make them connect and and I hope it's a great thing maybe one day that your um two girls can listen back on as well and and hear the story from from in the middle of it 
Um, so yeah, I wanted to thank you so, so much for coming on. I hope you've enjoyed the talking it through as well. Yeah, definitely. I want to say thank you as well. I think I had a bit of a, an imposter syndrome at the beginning after listening to the podcast, you know, following an, um, an interview with an ex-professional rugby player. I was thinking, what can I possibly say that people want to listen to? So, you know, if, um, you know, I hope people are um, open-minded to listen to this insight. Um, and I've, you know, been as open and honest about it as I possibly could be. So mm, Hugely. Thank you so, so much for your time. It's so appreciated. And uh, yeah, so I'll talk to you in 12 months time and, and we'll see how <laughs> sure. things are going, where we're all at and if we're, if we're on holiday by that point. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks so much to Sarah for sharing her story. Um, as mentioned several times, in it i found it really humbling to hear that story and hopefully it really connects with people and just felt a really important um story a really important viewpoint about the pandemic and what it's like for people on the front line and i think this situation all highlights um around how close we actually all are um you know physically and figuratively is that we are part of a community and there is definitely a group of people who are really um going above and beyond at the moment to help people in this situation and to help try and move us out but ultimately care for those people who need it right now and um, yeah really humbling to hear that story and I think as a community it's really important that we're ready for those people who will need support um, as Sarah mentioned on the other side and that's about open and honest uh, conversations and, and talking so yeah thank you so much again to Sarah for coming on um only wanted to just mention as well that um, we've started to link up and we'll link this year in partnership with the charity Calm. We're going to be raising money for them this year. Um, head over to breathingspace.se if you want to find out more. Um, we also run kind of little practical sessions in the mornings sort of 7.30am UK time. You can see more on my page. So if you can head to Instagram at breathingspace underscore online. Um, or breathingspace.se you'll find a bit more um, real practical short little tips for kind of managing um, whatever pressures life um, that work balance um, at the moment also things to just help pick up for the day start the day in the right way so yeah head on over um, and give us a follow and don't forget to subscribe and leave us any reviews on here it's really appreciated and really helpful thank you very much and we'll see you next time